Well, it is great to be with you this morning. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, this last week. We had some gorgeous weather and uh, even the rain. I, I don't mind the rain because it just washes everything, doesn't it? Everything's always so gross after, after the, uh, the winter because it's all so dirty and grimy and the snow melts and all the dirt that was in the snow gets left behind and we need a good rain just to, uh, just to wash that away and give us a fresh spring start. But I know at the same time, uh, on our drive-in this morning, we went by creeks that looked like oceans because they were so overflowed and into the farmer's fields all around. Um, so we know that we want that wind to come and dry things up. And even more so, we want the wind of the Spirit to come and just move in this place, don't we? We do. Um, I, just a couple of things that I, I want to highlight there uh, that, we've seen, that we saw that Angela brought up. Alpha. We had a report of the last Alpha group that met uh, that just finished, and uh, the move of the Spirit in that Alpha group was absolutely amazing. Uh, not only did people learn more about who God was and what, uh, how we interacted with God as, as humanity, the Holy Spirit just fell on that group over Zoom, where people were filled with the Spirit and, and started a new relationship with God through an online Alpha group. Do we not serve a God that can do anything? Amen, right? We don't need to be only present in person for the Holy Spirit to move and catch from one person to the next. He has the ability to do it over Zoom, where that impartation of what God has given us can be given to somebody else even over that. And so even if you're watching on Zoom, you couldn't join us today, please know that you are with us in spirit as well as in truth and in this moment. And we are so glad you're with us and we don't see you as second class or overflow seating in our space here. You are right here front and center and probably actually have one of the best views that you can get in the room. Zoomed up on my lovely face right now. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah, that's really awesome. They're like, they're like probably putting in the chat, nope, nope. Can you black out your screen and I can just listen to you? It'll be like a podcast. As well, I, I love the creativity of our Generations team. And uh, whether or not you're a good baker or not, maybe you'll be like the show that's on TV called Nailed It, where you, you try and do something really nice and you're like, not quite, and you nailed it. Maybe it'll be like that if you're a mom or a dad baking with your kids or a grandparent baking with your kids and it doesn't quite turn out the way you hope it will, but you know what will be awesome? That experience together and being able to grow in God and follow those recipes and use everyday things to teach our next generation that there is a recipe to following God. There is ways that we know, proven ways in our lives that we've seen that our relationship with God grows when we pay attention to those things and when we put them in proper measurement into our lives. So I encourage you to follow through with one of those things, one of the great things that we, we have going on. Because everything that we do announce on Sunday mornings, we're not just trying to fill up your time. Really, we're not. What we're trying to do is give you any and every tool possible for you to grow in your relationship with God. Not everything is going to be applicable to you, but something will. Whether it's Heart Strong or Capital 21 or uh, the, the uh, Spring Bake, one of those things is going to be something that you can connect with. 
or Alpha, if you need to walk with somebody. Even I know there's some people in our uh, congregation here that invited somebody from work and they went through Alpha together and it changed their outlook and it changed their spiritual formation with God. And so we want to encourage you to dive deeper in that this right here, this Sunday morning experience is a drop in the bucket. It's just the beginning of our week to start us off another week of us moving in the spirit and moving with God. So I encourage you to do so. All right, so our series that we're going through, it's a short series, uh, three messages long, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, but is that not the pinnacle of our year? Most of the time, it seems that like Christmas is that pinnacle, is, doesn't it? Because everything is all like, you know, wrapped up in a pretty bow, and everything seems like Christmas is the season that we, we highlight, but really, it's Easter. Easter is the pinnacle of our year, and it starts with Palm Sunday, and we commemorate uh, and celebrate this Sunday. But maybe you're like me, and you, if you grew up in church, and you were a little toddler all the way to through your, your young year years in church, what you remember of Palm Sunday is crafts of cutting out green construction paper and making little palm branches and sticking them on either a straw or like a, a, a little skewer or something like that and making palm branches and then waving them around the church on your way out after Sunday school and just dropping them everywhere, right? There, it, looked, it, it was like the trees were losing their leaves because there's palm branches left everywhere all over the church. Every kid made it, bent it, you know, you had it on the straw and then the straw wouldn't stay straight anymore and then you're like, well, what use is this? And you just threw it off to the side. And it literally was like that Palm Sunday because there was palm branches strewn everywhere like you're just walking on them. That was, that was my recollection of Palm Sunday for so many years, both as a kid and then, then as, a, as a parent, you know, having my kids come out of their classes with palm branches of different types and sorts and them going, where did you leave your palm it's somewhere in the church. I'm sorry, custodians, for the work you have to do cleaning up after all these events. But what exactly is Palm Sunday? Why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? The easy, quick answer is, well, that's the week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So we, we celebrate the fact that he rode into Jerusalem. But why is this all so significant? Why do we celebrate that? Because realistically, we're celebrating the fact that he entered a city to die. And... It seems like this, this really strange moment for us to open this, this weekend, uh, this, this Passion Week, with, with celebrating with palms. And, and why palms? And why do we still do this now? Well, let me take you back on a little bit of a, a history lesson. Some of you guys may know some of this. Some of it may be new information for you. But this is the way we, we kind of figure out how Palm Sunday is significant for us. There's three Old Testament feasts that played an important uh, role for Israel and in this season. In the, for us, it would be like our spring season here. There's three um, that, that happened in this season. It, that was called either the Passion Week or uh, the Passover Week for them. The celebrations were holy days that were prescribed by law from Moses that he got on Mount Sinai. And we can find that in Leviticus 23. If you ever want to look it up, you can go back to Leviticus 23 and see it there. According to the law, uh, the sacrifice in remembrance of the very first Passover in Egypt took place on the 14th day of Nisan, which was, uh, which is, 
in their, their calendar, their month. That was the 14th day that they had to do it, the Passover. The very first one, when they were leaving uh, Egypt, when the, the, the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt and the firstborn of everyone who didn't have the markings over their door uh, perished. And that was the beginning of the exit of Israel from their um, enslavement in Egypt and towards the promised land. So marking that, that's what the first one was. And that was on the 14th day of, of Nisan. The second day, the next day, was the day that they observed and started the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because as they left Egypt and walked through the desert, they had unleavened bread, bread that wouldn't go bad because it had yeast in it. And they had that bread that they were going to eat as they left. And that began that next day. And then on the next day after that, what was instituted was a feast of first fruits, a feast of the harvest uh, that they had planted in the fall that was now just becoming ripe, the barley and things like that, that had been fall planted and now were ready for them. And so that was their first fruits uh, offering and sacrifice. So they had these three days on our, our Easter weekend that were big, important feasts for them. All right, and that's, that's what started. So the 14th, 15th, and 16th day of, of Nisan were their, um, their, their big important days. And God had established seven feasts for Israel to, to remember throughout the year. Seven feasts that would tie their relationship to him, how he would sustain them. And each feast spoke to uh, one aspect of the ultimate restoration of man to God. And while the feasts and the sacrifice seemed like something that Israel did for God as they had to come and worship God and they brought sacrifices and they had to live in tents or booths and, and uh, have songs and, and have these rituals that they would do, while it seemed like it was something they were doing for God and how they were worshiping God, ultimately, it's the opposite that was taking place. It was what God was doing for Israel. It was how God was making a provision for Israel, having that relationship with Israel, making sure Israel could be in relationship with him, and also speaking to the future promise that now we all have with God. Always, it is God for us. Always, it is him for us. Now, for this feast week in Jesus' time, when he was on earth, that last year he was on earth, the 10th day of Nisan, so that would have been a number of days before that, it was also, it was also known as the month of Aviv, if, if some of you guys are familiar with your, your Hebrew calendars and things like that. It fell on the Sunday, today, this Sunday. And John establishes in his gospel that the, the countdown to the Passover sacrifice identifying the day before Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the day before the Passover. As, or sorry, as six days before the Passover. And we see that in John 12, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany where Lazarus, who was, who, was bleh, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. And so we can see that going back from the Passover, there is when he arrived uh, just outside of Jerusalem in the small town of Bethlehem. And so this Sabbath that immediately, uh, immediately preceding the Passover is often called the Shabbat Haggadol, which just means the great Sabbath. And according to tradition, on the 10th of Nisan, in the year of the exodus of uh, Israel from Egypt, 
on that Saturday, it was considered a great event. In fact, it was considered a miracle for them because they had to choose a lamb, right, that they would have and keep for the Passover. They chose it on that day, and then they, did, they kept it tied to like a bedpost or a post in their house for the full week before the Passover would happen uh, and they would leave Egypt, right? And that Passover would need to stay there so they could see this, they would have the, the pure and spotless lamb present before them before the sacrifice would happen. Now, the fact that they could do this in Egypt take a lamb, select a lamb, and have it ready for sacrifice when the Egyptians at this time, when you think of it, they've already gone through like nine plagues, right? They've gone through tons of plagues and there's only one left that they have to deal with, right? And at this time, they had made them say, you know what, we're not giving you any hay. We're not giving you anything. We're gonna make you work twice as hard, 10 times as hard in order to be able to do the job that you're supposed to do. And for them to be able to take a lamb and keep it in their house and have that that would be both food, that would be both sustenance, and that would, that would be, you know, something that they took. For the Egyptians to allow them to do that, uh, they found that to be a miraculous thing that they were able to do so. And so here they are uh, celebrating this moment, right? This time where they would select the lamb for the sacrifice without being persecuted by their Egyptian masters. And so according to the law, the lamb chosen for the sacrifice by each family on that day must be visible for five days before the sacrifice in order for everyone to observe its perfection. Now, in conspiring to have Jesus killed, Caiaphas, the high priest, he literally selects Jesus, the lamb of God, for sacrifice. And John understands the prophetic significance of this in, in, his, in his gospel as uh, regarding the high priest selection. Because we read in John eleven forty nine to 52, it says, one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, and he, he says this a number of times, the high priest, that year said, you do not seem to have grasped the situation at all. You fail to see that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people. Now, what he means when he says that is that he's, saying, he's thinking Jesus is going to cause an insurrection. And rather than have Rome come down on us and all of us as a nation pay the price for Jesus' insurrection versus Rome, it's better that we conspire and have him killed and, and save ourselves than for all of us to be punished. That's what he's thinking in his head and in his heart. But prophetically, he's speaking something that he doesn't even recognize. Let's continue. Rather than that, the whole nation should perish. He did not speak in his own person, but as high priest of that year, he was prophesying that Jesus was to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also uh, to gather together unto one, the scattered children of God. What happens here is that the high priest selects that perfect lamb sacrifice. It's displayed for five days for everybody to, to see. And do we know for five days, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, for the next five days, Jesus would be at the temple for everybody to see him as he taught, as he cleared the temple, and as he showed them that he was indeed that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice for them, prophetically fulfilling what scripture had said 
what the law had said in Leviticus and what the high priest had selected by choosing him to die for the people. Absolutely amazing to see how God works this out. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, where his followers laid palm branches and clothing down, through to the Passover meal, his arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection, would become Christianity's adaptation of Israel's holy week, of that Passover week that they celebrate. It began with what we now call Palm Sunday. And so what I'd like to do for a few minutes is just to look back at some of the Old Testament roots of this event, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and show the deeper meaning behind Jesus' actions for us uh, in a way in which anticipates the prophetic revelations of the rest of the Passion Week. And so now we'll read through that entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, there's so many aspects of this event that we could talk about, but there's two that I think uh, will help us and highlight us the most today. And they are this, the first, the prophetic roots of Jesus' act of riding the colt into the city. And the second, the prophetic roots of the crowd's response to his actions. Or, as we could word it within our series, how deeply significant Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem points to God for us. And two, no matter how we receive him, he is still God for us. And so why does Jesus ride in uh, on a colt into Jerusalem? By choosing to publicly mount and ride a colt into Jerusalem in the midst of the procession of so many Passover pilgrims into the city, Jesus is fulfilling a prophetic uh, sign meant to both symbolize and set into motion the major events of, in history for salvation. In this case, Jesus' act of riding in on the colt into Jerusalem, it looks back to Zechariah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, into the city of Jerusalem. In Zechariah 9.9 is where we find that. Yet, there is more in that messianic passage than we, we, we dare to imagine. 
when we go back to that prophecy and read it in its fuller context, we discover that there are several important features in particular towards the, the prophecy regarding uh, the king coming, the Messiah. Let's read that in Zechariah 9, verses uh, 9 to 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall seek peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, there's a lot in there, and I'd like to look at three aspects of his prophecy that stand out to me. Number one. He is for us as a king of peace, not war. Number two, he is for us as a king for the whole world. And three, he is for us and will set his people free from that waterless pit, which is death, through the blood of the covenant. So our king of peace, he comes as our king of peace. According to Zechariah, the messianic king who will come riding into Jerusalem is not just any kind of king. He is a king of peace, and he will not be coming to wage an earthly war, but make the chariot and the war horse cease from Jerusalem. It's important that the reason why he's riding in on a donkey and not on a horse is because a donkey is something that a king would ride in on peacetime. And when it was wartime, all the kings of Israel past would have been riding Horses. They would have gone out in their chariots to war and they would return as victorious champions in their chariots with horses. And in peacetime, though, they would ride into the city on a donkey. And here Jesus is coming in towards his victory, towards what he was going to do to bring uh, the reign of the Messiah to the people of Israel. And yet he's not coming in on a war horse, he's coming in already in peace speaking that that victory is already won. And he's not coming to overthrow Rome. He's not coming to to, uh, start an insurrection. He's coming in peace. And we see this throughout his ministry, don't we? That Jesus in his teachings, that he wasn't coming to, to start a revolution that would overthrow political empires, that would overthrow human empires. We see that he came to bring a revolution of our heart and an insurrection towards the brokenness and the the sin within each and every one of us. And we see it right even until his arrest, where there he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they've come to arrest him. And Peter takes out a sword to defend Jesus, to stand up for Jesus, and to make sure that his reign in Jerusalem can actually begin. And he chops the ear off one of the, the, the servants of the priests. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He stops him. And in response to this, Jesus declares this. He says, but no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Jesus doesn't come to start war. Jesus doesn't come to to begin conflicts. He comes to bring healing and peace. And that is how he rode into the city that day. 
even though he is the Messiah, neither Jesus nor his followers, the disciples or us today will rule through power, through the power of the sword, through political power, through any type of power. We do not rule that way. Instead, through the power of serving by taking up the cross and following him. How we live now is by following his lead. Regardless of the rule of earthly kings around us, we serve our king and we serve others in love. The second thing that he came as and he is for us is our king of kings. Notice that according to Zechariah's prophecy, the king would come riding in as a colt and also be a universal king. His dominion shall not just be over the people of Israel, which is what they were looking for, but instead to the ends of the earth. From sea to sea would his dominion be. And we see this element in his triumphal entry fulfilled on the cross. Because although the inscription above his head said, this is the king of the Jews, at the moment of his death, it is a Gentile centurion that recognizes the innocence of Jesus and the true reality of who he is. And it says in Mark 15, 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Our servant, king of peace, and king of kings, as it says in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. He is our king of peace, but he is also the king of kings. And third, he is our covenant-keeping king. According to Zechariah's prophecy, it is a king of peace who rides, into the, rides the colt into Jerusalem, who will deliver his people all people, and not through the shedding of blood in battle, but through the blood of the covenant, which will set captives free from the dead, from death, known as the waterless pit in the Old Testament. Once again, this Old Testament background of Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, the city on Palm Sunday ultimately points towards what he will accomplish in his passion. For in the upper room at that last supper, we see where Jesus ties that scripture from Zechariah into his actions in that prophetic way. In Luke 22, 19 to 20, it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So just like Zechariah had prophesied upon that entry into Jerusalem, it set into motion this new way of thinking, this new covenant. And little did they know exactly what Jesus was planning to do. It is by means of this covenant poured out upon the cross that he promises the thief 
that he will not go down to the waterless pit, but into glory of paradise. In Luke 23, 39 to 43, we read this. One of the criminals who who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying in reply, Do you not fear? Do you not fear of God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke there highlights the difference between the thieves is really how they understand the nature of Jesus' kingship. The first thinks Jesus' messiahship and kingship means that he must save his subjects from suffering and physical death right away. That he's supposed to establish this reign and this rule in Jerusalem. And that's how he's supposed to lead. And anything short of that is, is, this, is him failing. The second thief recognizes that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus reveals to him in the very midst of his agony that the restoration that he has come to give is not to be earthly. It's not just for the land of Israel, but it's to a kingdom that results in paradise. Lastly, as we look at the crowd's response to Jesus and our response, so what about how that crowd responded to Jesus in his triumphal entry with their proclamation of the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they take branches and they lay them down and, and create a path for him. As they take off their, their outer garments and lay it down so the donkey could ride over it. The crowd is taking this from Psalm 118, a popular song that was sung during the Feast of Passover in Tabernacles. And when we go back and look at that psalm in context, again, we discover there's so much more prophetically than just those words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, look at what it says. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Save us. We pray, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. When the, when the crowds greet Jesus with those palm branches, they are reenacting the words of that psalm. A psalm that, that David actually uh, used when, when he was leading his son Solomon through Jerusalem when he was anointing him king and wanted to set him king up instead of one of his other sons that was looking to overthrow his reign and his rule. He rode his son Solomon on a donkey through the city having the people declare this type of psalm. And that was used and repeated since that time. And here they are doing that same thing. Yet in the psalm itself, notice that the king is not simply coming into the city just 
like it says, open to me the gates. He's going up to the temple to offer sacrifice. And not just any kind of sacrifice, but the thanksgiving sacrifice, which was known in Hebrew as the Todah offering. And we find that in Leviticus 7. Once this Old Testament background to the crowd's response is in place, the deeper meaning of Jesus' triumphal entry is seen. The crowd with its branches and their palms and the psalms that they were singing have it right. Jesus is the king of Israel. He has come to his city and he's going up to the altar to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But the sacrifice he's going to offer isn't a bull or a goat. It's himself. How did Jerusalem welcome her Messiah? Not well. Not well at all. Jesus, as he entered the city that day, he's recorded as saying this in Luke 19.42. Weeping, he says, if you had only known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. They were anticipating a king who would rule right away overthrowing Rome and all its enemies. They were waving those palm branches in regards and laying down their coats in regards to who Jesus was, what he had done, all the power encounters they had seen uh, him do with healings and miracles as well as his power encounters with, with the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, him, him rebuffing them with, with his wisdom. And they were saying, if he enters in in that strength, if he enters in in the strength of being able to walk on water, of being able to heal the dead or raise the dead, if he has the power over storms and he comes into Jerusalem, imagine the kingdom that he can create with his rule. That's what they expected. And yet, here's the thing. The people that were, were cheering him on on his entrance, that crowd that was celebrating him on his entrance, Often we think it's the same crowd that turned fickle and was calling for his crucifixion uh, a few days later. It wasn't. That was his disciples and his followers that had been following him that were just caught up in who he was and in the moment and prophetically by the Spirit were, were, were announcing that Jesus was coming and that this kingdom was about to be established, that in just a few days' time, the reign of peace and the reign of God's kingdom was about to come, and they're prophetically acting this out. And the crowd who would turn and call for his crucifixion, that was the crowd of Jerusalem. That was the crowd of the city that had rejected its prophets. That was the crowd of, of the city who had, who had ignored what the prophets had called for. And they looked for a king and a kingdom, but they couldn't recognize it. And Jesus, as he's entering, saying, the conditions for peace, what you could have had if you had accepted me, you can't even see it now. It's covered from your eyes. How do we receive our king? On this Palm Sunday, do we wave palm branches? Do we expect a king that's coming to rule and reign in our lives? In what particular way? Do we see it as a kingdom that transcends our challenges, heartaches, and struggles that we face daily? Or do we see it as something that needs to take place now 
Answer my needs now in order for your kingdom to be real in my life, God. If you don't do this, your kingdom can't be real. Or do we see it as something so much bigger and so much more? Because every time we proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, we remember that first Palm Sunday. But even more, we invite him, the coming king, into our lives. And as he said at that table, he pours out the blood of a new covenant into the one eternal offering by which we too are given peace and enter into his kingdom. Augustus, top lady, said many, many years ago in the 1700s, he said this, when Christ entered into Jerusalem, the people spread garments in the way. And when he enters into our hearts, we pull off our own righteousness and not only lay it under Christ's feet, but even trample upon it ourselves. God is for us, even when we don't understand who he really is. God is for us in peace for all nations through his covenantal sacrifice. And God is for us even when we don't fully know how to receive him. As we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are invited first to his table. We are invited to share in a covenantal meal that sets his reign over our hearts and our lives. And whether it is a first time for you to do so or the 50th or 60th time you've approached the table at Easter, we have an offer from God to confess. Remember, if we talk about confession, it's our hearts aligning and agreeing with what God says for us and about us. We confess our relationship with God for us. In Romans 10, 9 to 13, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Think back to what they said that first, that first Palm Sunday, where they called out, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May we, this Palm Sunday, continue that proclamation. God, save us. God, we confess our need for you. God, we say, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, may we see that your kingdom comes not because and not in a way that, that sets us up for a rule on earth without problems, without pain, without opposition, but instead it sets up a kingdom in our hearts that allows us to move forward in peace despite the challenges we face. Today, may we come to the table like the thief who knew what God's kingdom really looked like and receive all he has for us.